Welcome back to the best movies with Richard Roper and Ro Khan. I'm Ro Khan, host of an afternoon talk show on Chicago's WGN Radio. He's Richard Roper, film critic of the Chicago Sun-Times and former co-host of Ebert and Roper. And this is our Memorial Day special. 2020 is the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II. And we decided for this Memorial Day, we would do the top 10 war films of the past 75 years. And, Ro, we decided that we would compile our respective top tens independently and then share them with each other. And it turns out we had six films overlapping in our top ten, including four of the top five. So the ten films we're going to spotlight here represent the aggregate, including, of course, the six films that made both of our list and then two each that we picked. I think it's a fantastic, stellar group of classic films about some great American heroes. And it's a big task to come up with the top 10 war movies in the last 75 years. But there's a little bit of logic to what we're doing here. Obviously, the pre-war films uh, were, uh, most of them were political warnings, you know, warning about the upcoming war. And then the movies made during World War II were aimed at recruiting or fundraising. So in the years and the decades after 1945, war movies became wildly popular. 80% of Americans somehow touched the war effort. 20% of all the males in America fought in the last year of the war. There were millions of stories to be told and thousands of ways to tell those stories. You had these grand sweeping epics from the 50s and 60s, like The Longest Day, Bridge Over the River Kwai, From Here to Eternity, The Great Escape. Into the 70s, America once again got kind of war-weary. Filmmaking about war became much darker. Yeah, absolutely. And listen, I know folks out there, and we thank you so much for, for listening and subscribing and leaving your comments and, and ratings. I can already hear people saying, I can't believe you didn't include that movie. Well, you know what? You're absolutely right in your opinions because there are no rights or wrongs. And I guarantee you, I love our top 10 list. I think these are all four-star classic films. But somebody else out there could compile a list of 10 films that didn't make this list, 10 post-war movies, that would be equally as compelling. So let's start with number 10. From 2012, Zero Dark Thirty. Bin Laden uses a courier to interact with the outside world. By locating the courier, we've located Bin Laden. That's really the intel. That's it. Quite frankly, I didn't even want to use you guys. With your dip and your Velcro and all your gear bullshit, I wanted to drop a bomb. But people didn't believe in this lead enough to drop a bomb. So they're using you guys as canaries in the theory that if Bin Laden isn't there, you can sneak away and no one will be the wiser. Hmm. But Bin Laden is there. And you're going to kill him for me. This is actually the most recent entry on the list, directed by Catherine Bigelow, a great film from 2012. Jessica Chastain plays a fictional CIA operative. She's kind of a composite. We have other actors playing real-life characters. And this is a very controversial film because they showed a lot what, what they call those, um, what do they call them, enhanced interrogation techniques, if you will. Others would call it torture. Some people see this film as pro enhanced interrogation technique others say it is a an absolute screed against it i think it depends on where you come from politically but setting that aside the controversy aside it's just a great war film and i think jessica chastain's best performance you're chasing a ghost while the whole fucking network goes all around you you just want me to nail some low-level mullah crackadola so you can check that box on your resume that says while you were in pakistan you got a real terrorist but the truth is you don't understand pakistan and you don't know Al-Qaeda. 
Either give me the team I need to follow this lead, or the other thing you're going to have on your resume is being the first station chief to be called before a congressional committee for subverting the efforts to capture or kill bin Laden. There's a great cast in this movie. Jason Clark, Chris Pratt, Kyle Chandler, and in one of his last performances, James Gandolfini as CIA director Leon Panetta. It's one of those scenes in the middle of this giant big production with a lot of action sequences and big set pieces and it's just a quiet confrontational scene and Gandolfini is just absolutely mesmerizing. I'm about to go look the president in the eye and what I'd like to know, no fucking bullshit. It's where everyone stands on this thing. Now, very simply, is he there or is he not fucking there? We all come at this through the filter of our own past experiences. Now, I remember Iraq WMD very clearly. I fronted that, and I can tell you the case for that was much stronger than this case. A fucking yes or a no. I also want to mention the writer of this movie, Mark Bull. He's a journalist-turned-screenwriter. He also wrote The Hurt Locker and a recent straight-to-Netflix film called Triple Frontier that people should check out. So he brings a real authenticity to the writing of this movie. You'll notice the stealth panels, similar to what we use on the B-2. The rotors have been muffled with decibel killers. It's slower than a Black Hawk, lacks the offense and the stability, but it can hide. So, uh, excuse me, what do we, what do we need this for in, in Libya? I mean, Gaddafi's anti-air is virtually non-existent. Maya, do you want to brief him? At number nine from 1946, the best years of our lives. This is when I know I'm helpless. My hands are down there on the bed. I can't put them on again without calling to somebody for help. I can't smoke a cigarette or read a book. If that door should blow shut, I can't open it and get out of this room. I'm as dependent as a baby that doesn't know how to get anything except cry for it. One of the great American films of any genre of all time, 1946. We're just past the war and we got this incredible, insightful and very much ahead of its time film row about veterans coming back home from the war and adjusting to civilian life. It was actually inspired by our Time Magazine article about real-life veterans, and this movie won seven Oscars, Best Picture, Best Director for William Wyler, uh, Frederick Mark for Best Actor, and, of course, Harold Russell, who actually had been injured and lost his hands in the war, won Best Supporting Actor for his portrayal of Homer, the petty officer, who comes home and, like the other two main characters, is having a lot of problems adjusting to the realities and sometimes the humdrum, regular routines of civilian life. And one of the best stories about the production of this movie is they actually sent him off to acting classes, and it made William Wyler so mad because he didn't want him to mm-hmm. learn how to act because he was so natural at being himself. And I think for a lot of veterans coming home from that war who might not have wanted to talk openly and honestly because that wasn't the way of the time they wanted their families to see this film to show them a little bit of what they might have been going through as well and i love this story too about harold russell Rowe. the academy of motion picture arts and sciences recognized harold russell they were going to give him a special achievement oscar or they've only done that a handful of times in the history of the academy awards Little did they know, to the voting branch's credit, he not only was nominated, but he won for Best Supporting Actor. He didn't need to be in no special category, folks. <laughs> no, that, that is an excellent story. 
this movie did really, really well at the box office, yeah. which most war movies after 1946 did not do well. This actually debuted in 1947 in American theaters. It made 10 times its budget back just in the United States alone. It's a really special cinematic experience because most war films of the time weren't dealing with these issues of the stress and the damage that combat does, not just to the body, but to the soul. As does our next film, Coming Home from 1978. And there's a lot of shit that I did over there that I find fucking hard to live with. And I don't want to see people like you, man, coming back and having to face the rest of your lives with that kind of shit. It's simple as that. I don't feel sorry for myself. I'm a lot fucking smarter now than when I went. And I'm just telling you, there's a choice to be made here. Great film from the director, Hale Ashby. Now, this movie came out just a few years after the end of the Vietnam War, and like the best years of our lives, dealt with veterans coming home, and in the case of Jane Fonda's Sally, the awakening of a military wife. She's married to Bruce Dern's Bob Hyde. He's a captain in the Marine Corps. She gets bored while he's overseas serving and volunteers at a local VA hospital. She reconnects with John Voight's Luke Martin. He was actually a high school classmate of hers. They didn't really know each other that well. He's a paraplegic injured in the Vietnam War. They strike up this relationship that goes from a friendship to something much, much more. It's very scary for me to think that maybe it's not going to work out with him. I know. Because we've been together for so long. It's going to be very hard for him. <laughs> He's not going to like the fact that I've, I've changed. I have changed. Much, much more, because there's actually a very graphic sex scene in this film that I think even shocked audiences of the late 1970s. It's a sex scene between the John Voight and uh, Jane Fonda characters, and all I can say about it is I, I believed it kind of spawned a reawakening or revolution in a certain technique that had a lot of women tapping their partners on the shoulders and saying, you know, you should pay attention to this scene. Jane Fonda won Best Actress. John Voight won for Best Actor. The film was nominated for a total of eight Academy Awards. I also want to talk about Bruce Dern, who gives one of the best performances in his six-decade career as Bob Hyde, as the captain in the Marine Corps, who's kind of the villain in this story, at least the way it's first played, but of course really isn't. And he comes home, and we find out that he's suffering from PTSD of all the movies that have used the Rolling Stones' Sympathy for the Devil to great effect, none have done it better than coming home. She's here because she loves you. There was never any question of that. Don't tell me that, goddammit! It's true what he's saying, Bob. Bullshit! Bullshit! You give her a chance. She can help you. She wants to listen to you. And she wants to understand. Say something else, fuck. Say something else, fuck. Staying with movies from the Vietnam War from 1986. Oliver Stone's Platoon. It's scary because nobody tells me how to do anything because I'm new. Nobody cares about the new guys. They don't even want to know your name. The unwritten rule is a new guy's life isn't worth as much because he hasn't put his time in yet. And they say if you're going to get killed in the Nam, it's better to get it in the first few weeks. The logic being you don't suffer that much. 
Ro, you and I have talked to Oliver Stone, the director and writer of this film, many times over the years. And I remember him telling us that, if people don't know this, Oliver Stone served in Vietnam. And ever since he saw John Wayne in the Green Berets, which was very pro-America, some people said it was almost propaganda, he wanted to tell a different side of the Vietnam War. And he wrote the story of Platoon based on his own experiences as a U.S. infantryman in Vietnam. Eight nominations and four wins, including Best Picture, Director, and a couple of categories we've talked about a lot, Best Sound and Best Editing. This film turns Vietnam narrative on its ear. It's about a kid who is private school educated, comes from a wealthy family, and decides he's not going to get drafted. He's going to volunteer. And he has to endure the criticism of all these working class guys who got drafted. Like, why would you do this? Why would you choose to be here? Giving up college? Didn't make much sense. I wasn't learning anything. I figured, why should just the poor kids go off to war and the rich kids always get away with it? Oh, I see. What we got here is a crusader. <laughs> Sounds like it. Shit. You got to be rich in the first place to think like that. A lot of these films, we're going to talk about the ensemble cast because military dramas, war movies lend themselves to these great casts. Tom Berenger, Willem Dafoe, and of course you're talking about Charlie Sheen, who was just coming up then. Back-to-back did Platoon and Wall Street, long before Charlie Sheen became a, a comedy guy and then sadly kind of a punchline. He was the hottest actor of them all and picking the greatest projects. Also Kevin Dillon, John C. McGinley, Forrest Whitaker, and even Johnny Depp. This great ensemble cast, along with Oliver Stone's skilled filmmaking and experience, it really brought home the chaos of war. And after Platoon's success, a year later, Stanley Kubrick returns to filmmaking with Full Metal Jacket. I am Gunnery Sergeant Hartman, your senior drill instructor. From now on, you will speak only when spoken to. And the first and last words out of your filthy sewers will be, sir. Do you maggots understand that? Sir, yes, sir. Bullshit, I can't hear you. Sound off like you got a pair. Sir, yes, sir. If you ladies leave my island, if you survive recruit training, you will be a weapon. You will be a minister of death praying for war. But until that day, you are pukes. You are the lowest form of life on earth. You are not even human fucking beings. You are nothing but unorganized, grabastic pieces of amphibian shit. This was number two on my list of best war films of the past 75 years, wasn't even on your list. And I'm a little partial to this film because over the years I got to know R. Lee Ermey, who played Gunnery Sergeant Hartman. But I will be honest, even before I knew him, I would have said this is the first or second best war film. It's really two films. The first half takes place at Paris Island as these young Marines are being prepared for war. And the second half takes place in Vietnam. Son, all I've ever asked of my Marines is for them to obey my orders as they would the word of God. We are here to help the Vietnamese because inside every gook, there is an American trying to get out. It's a hardball world, son. We've got to try to keep our heads until this peace craze blows over. Aye, aye, sir. Well, first of all, I'd like to say in my defense, I would have had this probably at number 11. Definitely one of the great war movies of all time. And nobody makes a movie, literally nobody ever makes movies like Stanley Kubrick did and you're right, it, it's a great film about the whole boot camp experience with uh, Vincent D'Onofrio, of course, as Private Pyle and that shattering scene near the end of the first half. And Arlie Ermey was amazing, of course. And then 
the whole thing set during the Tet Offensive, which is equally as forceful and powerful. And I just love the mad genius of Kubrick Rowe. This movie was made entirely in England, of course, because that's where he liked to make his movies. He acquired 100,000 tropical plants to give us the feel that we're in the jungle. He bought four tanks from a Belgian army colonel who was a big fan of his. He would always figure out a way. Stanley Kubrick is the director who, when he made Eyes Wide Shut, instead of getting a permit and shooting in the streets of New York, he'll just build part of Manhattan on a soundstage. And he did the same thing here. But when you look at what he creates... It's an actor's film, and he has, Kubrick had such a great gift for getting the best out of actors, or in the case of Arlie Ermey, somebody who was not a trained professional actor. But then he could pull the camera back and give us some of the great epic sequences in films of all time. Now you listen to me, Private Pile, and you listen good. I want that weapon, and I want it now. You will place that rifle on the deck at your feet and step back away from it. <sighs> what is your major malfunction, numbnuts? Didn't mommy and daddy show you enough attention when you were a child? A quick story Arlie Ermey told about his experience on Full Metal Jacket. He was not originally intended to play Gunnery Sergeant Hartman. He was just there as a technical consultant. Shooting had begun. They weren't quite getting that drill sergeant opening scene that they were looking for. Stanley Kubrick asked Lee Ermey to go rewrite that opening scene because he wanted more authentic dialogue. Lee wrote it, then performed it for Stanley Kubrick, got the job, and then a Golden Globe nomination for Best Supporting Actor. What have we got here? A fucking comedian, private joker. I admire your honesty. Hell, I like you. You can come over to my house and fuck my sister. You little scumbag. I got your name. I got your ass. You will not laugh. You will not cry. You will learn by the numbers. I will teach you. Now get up. Get on your feet. I love that story about Arlie Ermey. You know, Ro, that's almost like a subset of actors who became actors because they were on film sets for other reasons. Fred Dalton Thompson played himself in a film called Marie and then went on to this great acting career. He had already been a politician. Dennis Farina was a Chicago cop, would help out as an advisor on some series and movies, and then people started saying, you know, that guy would be really good playing a cop. So as we head into the top five now, we go back to World War II. From 2006, Flags of Our Fathers and Letters from Iwo Jima. You get it? I don't know. I wish I could have seen their faces. The right picture can win or lose a war. You're going to want to see this. Now, this picture. People went crazy over it. Country was tired of war. One photo, almost all on its own, turned that around. What an incredible tour de force by director Clint Eastwood, who was 76 when he made these two epic stories back-to-back. We see the story of the Battle of Iwo Jima, first from the standpoint of the Americans, and then from the Japanese side in films that were released for about two months apart, back-to-back. And in fact, both of them did very well at the box office, and Letters from Iwo Jima actually did a little bit better because I think so many people who saw Flags of Our Fathers were eager to see the story 
from the perspective of the Japanese soldiers. It's not the first film to humanize the enemy, although so many war films, you have to almost have this monolithic villainous enemy so you can root for our heroes. I mean, going all the way back to All Quiet on the Western Front in 1930, that was done, but maybe one of the best. Really telling the story first about the Marines and the Navy corpsmen who were involved in the raising of the flag of Iwo Jima, and then from the perspective of the Japanese soldiers, including the great Ken Watanabe as the Japanese lieutenant general, who realizes this is not going to end well. Most of that movie is in Japanese, and Clint Eastwood was directing these actors not speaking the language. Just an incredible directing feat. And when we go back to Flags of Our Fathers, a lot of it is about what happened to those instant media heroes when they came home, and it was very much like the best years of our lives, Row. I mean, a lot of them suffering from PTSD. Some of them didn't want to be held as heroes. You know, the, there's the whole backstory about the raising of the flag that it was actually done twice the second time kind of for the photo op. And there's this incredible sequence. I had to look this up to make sure this really happened. I'm sure you know because you're a military buff. But they actually went on a war bond tour when they got home, raising money for the defense effort. And they would go to major cities. There's a scene that was shot here in Chicago at Soldier Field where 50,000 people turned out to see these heroes recreate the raising of the flag on a glorified soundstage. Pretty incredible. Everybody wants to meet you guys. Just some simple things we want you to say. Mostly, buy bonds. You know, I think this whole damn thing is a farce. If we don't raise $14 billion, this war's over by the end of the month. For number four, we stay in World War II's Pacific Theater. From 1998, Terrence Malick's The Thin Red Line. What difference do you think you can make one single man in all this madness? You're just too soft-hearted. You're not tough-fibered enough. Have you ever had anyone die in your arms, sir? We go back to the ensemble cast here, Sean Penn, Jim Caviezel, maybe his best role, one of his best roles, Nick Nolte, Ben Chaplin, Jared Leto, John Travolta, George Clooney. Some critics were a little put off by that because they felt like almost celebrity cameos took away from the overall picture. I think that's nonsense because they're all great actors who slipped into the roles. This was Terrence Malick's first film in 20 years. He's a very mercurial, ethereal, mystical guy who does work when he wants to do work. And even in a war film, he finds room for these poetic interludes. You're always going to get in a Terrence Malick film, almost always, a kind of flashback dreamy sequence of a beautiful woman in a summer dress on a swing set or running along the beach, kind of reminding the characters of the best possible thing in life and then contrasting that with some of the worst hellish moments on earth how many men do you think it's worth how many lives there's nowhere we can hide except in each other this film is so beautiful and so horrifying all at the same time because it is so real you get this beautiful cinematography it almost feels like a national geographic special then you get the horrors of war all within a few frames And the expressions and the actions of the various characters, some of whom have already been rendered almost into a trance-like state by the horrors of war. Others who are almost bragging about the fact that they don't feel anything anymore, even about their own fellow soldiers dying, that they've reached that point of numbness. And then, you know, you get the battles for who's going to be in command. And we see this in a few of these movies, including the aforementioned Platoon, 
where someone's in charge, ostensibly, according to rank, but someone else might have more respect from the men who have the boots on the ground who are really fighting the war. A family can have only one head, and that is the father. Father's ahead, mother runs it. That's the way it's going to work here. If any of you men want to see me about anything... You're in a box. Anything at all. A moving box. You will find that I am available. This war is not going to be over by next Christmas. It's going to be a long time before we get home. They want you dead. Or in their life. This film has such an independent, naturalistic feel to it, but a huge, famous cast. When you have all these big stars, from John Travolta to George Clooney to Sean Penn, it makes it seem like a more commercial endeavor as well. It helps the box office of the film. It's a movie that's beauty and sorrow will stick with you forever. At number three, a movie that once you see it, you'll never forget it. In 1978, The Deer Hunter. And just as Full Metal Jacket was two complete movies that made for one even greater movie, this is really three films, Ro. You have the opening act, which is the wedding, the greatest wedding sequence, right up there with the first Godfather. And these buddies are all signed up to go to Vietnam. And at the bar of the wedding hall, they run into a guy who's coming back from Vietnam. This is the groom, Steve. I'm the best man. We're going airborne, sir. I hope they sent us where the bullets are flying. That's right. Fighting's the worst, huh? That's That's right. right. Bucket. Bucket. What do you say? Bucket. That's what I (laughs) say. Well, what's it like over there? Can you tell us anything? So many people can relate to those gigantic weddings which play out like a Shakespearean drama and comedy before it's all over. That's done beautifully. And then that jarring cut to the war and some of the most precarious and frightening and chilling war scenes and torture scenes and POW scenes we've ever seen. And then, of course, the coming home sequence where we see how the war has affected these fine young men who just wanted to serve their country, went into it with such gung-ho patriotism, absolutely sure that this was the right thing to do, and then have their lives changed and, in some cases, absolutely shattered by their experiences in Vietnam. Let's just talk about the cast for a moment. you got Robert De Niro, Christopher Walken, John Cazale, who we've talked about in a number of these podcasts. Mm-hmm. Incredible. Christopher Walken won for Best Supporting Actor. And what an arc his character has, of course, because in the early scenes, it's his wedding. And, oh, my gosh, he does this amazing dance. And then, of course, he's the guy that, that doesn't leave Vietnam and gets into these hideous and horrifying games of Russian roulette. Such a brilliant performance. And Meryl Streep, that was her first nominated performance. And she was so lovely with Robert De Niro's character of Michael and the relationship they tentatively enter into once he's home. It's just a a beautiful, mournful, great film. And then it ends on that note that is getting me choked up just thinking about it, Ro, after a memorial service where the the core group gets together in in the bar. God bless America, my home, sweet home. 
At number two from 1998, Steven Spielberg's Saving Private Ryan. Some private in the 101st lost three brothers and he's got a ticket home. How come Newville? Yeah, I think he's up there somewhere, part of all those airborne mist drops. It's not going to be easy finding one particular soldier in the middle of this whole goddamn world. Right, and a needle and a stack of needles. This is such a great pairing of director and actor. Steven Spielberg, greatest American director of his generation. Tom Hanks, greatest movie star of his generation. It's an American war epic for the ages. We'd seen a lot of war movies through the decades that showed the horrors of war, but nothing quite like the opening 27-minute sequence of the Omaha Beach assault during the Normandy landings row where Spielberg filmed it in a way where we felt like we were right there in the middle of the chaos. And, of course, that is one of the most famous battles of all time, and history has recorded so much about it. And yet this was maybe the first time in a fictional feature film where we saw just how crazy and chaotic and hellish it was for those good men, most of them were early 20s, many of them, of course, not career soldiers, and they were plunged into the horrors of war as we were in that opening sequence. some criticism about that when the film first came out that why did Steven Spielberg have to be so gory here because he wanted to tell the story of the horror of war and the heroism it takes to get through it there are some critics or students of film who say that any movie about war is going to glorify war just because cinema itself is so beautiful and dreamlike and all-encompassing others will say no there's never been a war movie that's not in some way anti-war because it's showing the horrors of war there's no doubting the skill behind this. And, you know, Tom Hanks, the character he was playing, he's a regular guy. He's tasked with bringing home the last surviving brother of an American family. Three brothers have been killed. He's going to get Private Ryan out of harm's way. And Matt Damon plays Private Ryan in kind of a small role, but a pivotal role. He doesn't want to be a token rescuee. It doesn't make any sense, sir. Why? Why, Why do I deserve to go? Why not any of these guys? They all fought just as hard as me. Is that what they're supposed to tell your mother when they send her another folded American flag? And then there's the classic moment when Hank's character tells Private Ryan he needs to earn it. He needs to earn with his life all the sacrifices that were made to bring him home safely. Earn this. Finally, at number one of the top 10 war movies of the last 75 years, from 1979, Francis Ford Coppola's Apocalypse Now. At first, I thought they handed me the wrong dossier. I couldn't believe they wanted this man dead. Third generation West Point, top of his class, Korea, airborne, about a thousand decorations, etc., etc., I'd heard his voice on the tape, and it really put the hook in me. But I couldn't connect up that voice with this man. Ro, there are some who say Francis Ford Coppola's best film is not Godfather 1 and or Godfather 2, but Apocalypse Now. I wouldn't quite make that argument, but it's pretty darn close. 
and this is an epic that has gone through various iterations over the years, different editing, etc. The story of the making of this movie has made for great documentaries and books because it's just as crazy almost as the subject matter. It's about the Vietnam War, but it's about war. It's about what it does to man and what it does to their hearts and souls and sometimes their spirits, their minds. What an amazing cast, starting, of course, with Marlon Brando as Colonel Kurtz. I've seen horrors. Horrors that you've seen. But you have no right to call me a murderer. You have a right to kill me. You have a right to do that. But you have no right to judge me. Robert Duvall, who was Lieutenant Colonel Bill Kilgore, with all those great quotable lines. Yeah, we'll pick your boat up and put it down like a baby, right where you want it. This is the first of the night. Air calves, son. Air mobile. I can take that point and hold it just as long as I like, and you can get any place up that river that suits you, young captain. Hell, a six-foot peak. <laughs> All right, take a gunship back to the division. Lance, go with Mike, let him pick out a board for you, and bring me my Yater spoon, the 8-6. I don't know, sir. It's what a... is it, soldier? Well, I mean, it's pretty hairy in there. It's, it's Charlie's point. Charlie, don't surf! And Martin Sheen, a friend of ours, who almost lost his life, literally almost lost his life when he suffered a heart attack during the making of this film, and he's so good as Captain Willard. When I was home after my first tour, it was worse. I'd wake up and there'd be nothing. I hardly said a word to my wife until I said yes to a divorce. When I was here, I wanted to be there. When I was there, all I could think of was getting back into the jungle. I'm here a week now, waiting for a mission, getting softer. And like some of these other films we've been talking about, it's kind of two movies. There's the procedural exposition of how the Vietnam War is proceeding, and then the search up the river for the madman. Are you an assassin? I'm a soldier. You're neither. You're an errand boy, sent by grocery clerks to collect a bill. This is a movie that is so stylized and sort of this waking nightmare, and yet has so many seeds of truth in it. First of all, it's based on Heart of Darkness, which was a, a novel by Joseph Conrad about a voyage up the Congo River. So it wasn't about the Vietnam War, but the same kind of symbolism applied. And then certain elements were really inspired by True Life, some magazine articles and other historical accounts. Coppola had heard about a certain kind of semi-crazy colonel who loved surfing even during wartime. There were articles about soldiers, of course, not only doing drugs, but listening to rock and roll even during bombing missions. And the use of music, of course, the famous, famous sequence where the choppers are coming in to the sounds of Wagner's Ride of the Valkyries. Spotted a large weapon down below. We're going to go down and check it out. All right, this and also so many great moments when the rock and roll of its time is used. Whether or not you love the doors or hate the doors or don't even remember the doors, the end has never been put to such great use. It's one of the great marriages of kind of mystical, overwrought rock and roll with mystical, overwrought madness, the heart of darkness. This is the end. 
On behalf of everyone here at The Best Movies, we wish you a happy and safe Memorial Day weekend. And to the families of the fallen, we wish you peace and the knowledge that a grateful nation honors your sacrifice. The Best Movies with Richard Roper and Rokan is produced by Skywave Entertainment in association with the Chicago Sun-Times. For a guide to this and all other episodes, visit the Richard Roper page at suntimes.com. Special thanks to our producer, Sergeant Brian Altimer, United States Marine Corps, and our distribution manager, Brian Ernst. On behalf of Richard Roper, I'm Ro Khan. See you next time.